1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
5: Tell me about yourself.
6: Oh, that's a loaded question.
5: <laughs> what's, what's going on? though? Let's. What, what, oh what do yeah. Think? Well, what?
6: yeah just just the Fringe Festival. I guess I'm working on that, watching shows, going uh, strong. This Talking be, to artists.
5: When this Listen. airs, this is the last couple of days. That's right. For the Atlanta Fringe Festival oh, that's virtual.
6: Super. And we have the audio festival. We're the only festival to have an audio program. So we have 22 free podcasts and radio dramas. So I'm excited about that. I can finally listen to some of those shows once all this is over. And our audio director, Jessica, says it's the best year yet. We've been doing it for... Almost 10 years now, so that's saying a lot.
5: <laughs> Look, some people have said they want to get us to know us better personally through the podcast. And if you're going to get to know Diana better personally, you're going to learn about the Atlanta Fringe Festival.
6: Because it's, uh, it's
5: that's 90% of her existence. Very
6: true. Anyway, but yeah, yeah, that's all. And work in this. And some nice comments on the internet about the shows.
5: Lovely feedback.
6: About the different uh, episodes we've put out, so that's nice.
5: We got some great feedback from our from our chiropractor today. True. Yeah.
6: I love our chiropractor. Yes. We go to the Body Well. If you're in Atlanta, go to the Body Well in Glenwood. Glenwood Yep. Um, Dr. Aaron. And Dr. Aaron. Jaden. We love them. And they were just saying, they were like, we listen to it and we love it. It was so exciting to like meet someone in the wild. Yeah. And then we all felt
5: (laughs) better and we went home.
6: It's true. I do feel better right now. So anyway, that's our free commercial for the Body Well in Glenwood (laughs) Park. (laughs) But no, they are really awesome. Look, so.
5: I'm not I'm not above talking about things I like to do, places I like to go. Without an you know an official sponsorship, whatever. Yeah. You know what else I like? Uh, Taco Bell. Get your fourth meal at Taco Bell.
6: Think outside the bun.
5: Think outside the bun. That's that's is that the one right now? No. Live moss. Live
6: moss. Oh, it might be live. That moss. might be the
5: last one I heard. I don't
6: know.
5: Anyway. If they're looking for a new spokesperson, you know. Live moss at Taco Bell. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> But welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show, everybody.
6: Hello. We're so glad you're here.
5: Of course, we got another stellar story to tell today. Honestly, this one's going to tug a little. It's going to get those heartstrings and it's going to pluck them like a, like a symphony harp, like we're transitioning to a fancy party scene in a movie.
6: Ooh. This is story did actually make me tear up a little bit but in a good way so
5: it's a sweet one i know we've had some uh, some cynical stories going on lately too right. and this one is there's there's darkness but at least the people are good people uh, that we're talking about which is a rarity in ridiculous romances right. as we're finding but nine miles south of tampa florida just off route 41 there is a place called gibsonton now it's affectionately referred to as gib town and once upon a time this place was a refuge. For circus workers, particularly those who performed in the sideshow.
6: In the golden days of the American Traveling Carnival, Gibtown was the go-to spot. It was perfectly situated. They have warm winter weather, so rides could be repaired. Big cats could be trained. Carnies could trade tips and games or even rides and just have somewhere to winter, I guess, when they're off the season.
5: Yeah. They said those big cats need to be trained every day or else they forget.
6: Hey. Uh,
5: Yeah. And you don't want a lion forgetting.
6: All right. Whereas the elephants only need to be training once. Oh, because they never forget. Because they never forget.
5: Hopefully um, today I think we got the big cats and the elephants out of carnivals.
6: Right. Well, and abuses and circuses will be explored in this episode.
5: But let's talk about two folks who changed Gibsonton from a small encampment to a full-fledged town. They were known as the world's strangest married couple, Al and Jeannie Tomaini.
6: Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in our show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio.
5: So Al Tamanyi was born in February of 1912. He was one of seven children, and he was born weighing 15 pounds, which, if I understand my baby science correctly, is large.
6: I was just thinking about his mom. Do you think it was a C-section, or do you think she, like, naturally pushed a 15-pound baby out?
5: I don't know. That would
6: be... Hello, That's
5: a large baby. I mean, for uh, people like me, who if you asked me how much an average baby weighs, <laughs> I would say between one and thirty pounds. Uh, wow. What's a? Well, what's, you're
6: not wrong. <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah. It's like people are like, my my kid finally, my kid just said her first words, and I'm like, okay, so she's either eight months or five. I'm not sure <laughs>
2: like,
5: where there. Amazing. It lands. I don't hold it in my head. So why don't you tell us what's a what's an, what's a baby size?
6: Well, I weighed six pounds I think when I was born, but okay. I think an average baby size is like eight, eight? nine that sounds pounds. Familiar. Yeah, I think eight. I feel like pretty people normal. are telling me I think ten is kind of like a big baby. That's like a you're like baby. I know big baby is ten pounds. You know, okay. people are like, oh shit, ten pounds. Like I think
5: okay, so fifteen pounds, very large baby, and it didn't stop there. His parents were Italian Americans, and by the age of twelve. Al was taller than his father. His father was six foot one. So that's saying something. Now, he had a great grandfather back in Italy who was also apparently abnormally tall. But still, I mean, this kid was huge. So they took him to a physician to see what was going on. 1912, I guess technology is there. They do some x-rays. They run some tests. They determine his pituitary gland was working overtime. Uh, excessive growth hormone. So Altamani grew to a height of, according to the Guinness Book World Records, he topped out at 7 foot 4 inches. And he took on work as a sideshow performer where he claimed a height of 8 foot 4. Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of people always referred to him as being 8 foot 4. But what I read was that he exaggerated that and nobody cared because he was such a nice guy. He billed himself as the tallest man in the world and he weighed 356 pounds and he wore size 27 shoes.
6: What big and tall store existed in 19-whatever, To Oh,
5: yeah. I mean, he had to have everything custom-made. In
6: 1916, a girl was born in Bluffton, Indiana, named Bernice Evelyn Smith. She was also one of seven children, but she was born without legs, and her arms were twisted with a mild deformity in her hands. But without a lot of trouble, she learned to walk on her hands with ease. She became quite acrobatic at an early age. In American Sideshow, author Mark Hartzman says she began walking on her hands, climbing ladders, and doing other ordinary things extraordinarily without legs. And at age three, her parents started touring her all over the country to perform in fairs as the living half-girl. And it seemed to be something she liked. She really enjoyed it. She would later write, I was born just as you see me now, with no sign or semblance of lower limbs. Despite this so-called handicap, I am able to do almost anything any other girl can do and was able to complete my education before entering show business.
5: And I mean, that's pretty impressive. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, it's very impressive. Uh, You know, I think living in a time that was probably very difficult for someone with such an abnormality physically. She talks about being in a world that was not built for someone like her. And she had to kind of learn on her own how to navigate it Mm -hmm. and seemed to do a pretty amazing job. She seemed to enjoy touring again. From what we said, from what we know, from context, uh, it seems like her parents really cared about her, her mother at least, and seemed to kind of enjoy taking advantage of an opportunity that few others had. Mm-hmm. When she didn't have the same opportunities as so many others, for what it's worth. Uh,
6: when she was thirteen, her mother died while Bernice was appearing in a show in Paris, Texas, and her father had actually left the family years earlier. But he and his girlfriend showed up after the funeral to take care of Bernice and her brothers. Mm-hmm. But then one day he took off again and the girlfriend tried to care for them, which, which this poor girlfriend is like, I, I never wanted seven children. And right. now I, I have seven kids by this dude who just left me.
5: Yeah. Left the kids once. Right. And then dating me was like, "Hey, come on, we gotta go uh, take care of my seven kids." And she's probably like, "I uh, guess. Okay. I mean, yes, yes. you know what? I'm gonna put myself in the headspace where this is this is what we're doing. Yes, we're gonna go help out your seven children. Let's do it." And then gets down there. And he's like, "By the way, um, you're gonna do this bye." <laughs> and then dipped, and she's like, "What? What? Yeah.
6: So unsurprisingly. Bernice and her brothers were eventually placed in an orphanage, pretty dismal places, I believe. I want to say, I mean,
5: I guess I only saw Little Orphan Annie. That's the extent of my (laughs) understanding of probably not a great place and probably especially not a great place for poor Bernice.
6: It did seem like it would be difficult to find her a home. Sure. But at age 15, she was adopted by a woman named Lizzie Weeks.
5: Lizzie Weeks is... This week's Villain of the week
6: <laughs> Let me
5: tell you About Lizzie Weeks It's believed That Lizzie Weeks Only adopted her For the potential profit Because Bernice Was immediately Put back on the road And exhibited And you might think Well sure But she enjoyed that mm-hmm. That was her space she, And that's
6: what her mom did That's to what her. her parents
5: did Yeah she You know This is her life And she was finally Getting back to it Except Lizzie would lock Bernice away When she wasn't Performing so that people wouldn't see her without paying. Or, as Bernice put it, so as not to, quote, ruin people's appetites.
6: Boo.
5: Boo, Lizzie Weeks. She was notoriously psychologically abusive to Bernice, and she basically flipped this whole enjoyable lifestyle that she had into pretty much a punishing chore. Mm-hmm. I think it was more of, and here's where we're going next, and this is what you're going to do, and you're going to do what I say, and you're going to sit in that room, and you're not going to come out until I say you can. I mean, talk about one side of the coin to the other in right. terms of yeah. exploitative, abusive experience for someone who's, even though she was young, I think she had some sense of pride and ownership over herself and what she was doing and why she was doing it. Mm-hmm. And you can't, you, you've got to imagine that once Lizzie takes over, it just becomes filled with shame and, right. and sadness, right?
6: Well, and you have to think too that, like, Lizzie's saying this shitty stuff about ruining people's appetites. I don't think that Bernice was hearing that at no. home before Lizzie Weeks because no. they clearly were like, te- you know, trying to make life as normal as possible for her. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're like, "We'll walk on your hands and we'll do normal things. We want you to learn. We want you to cook. We want you to clean, you know, and not saying, oh, you're a freak who's going to ruin people's appetites.
5: I'll tell you what, speculation station. I bet that Lizzie wouldn't have put the work in. Like if Bernice had been born to Lizzie. Mm she wouldn't have bothered trying to help her learn. Like she probably would have dumped her in an orphanage or worse. And it was only because Bernice already knew how to walk and get around and do these shows and stuff that Lizzie was like, cha-ching, mm-hmm. I could make some money here.
6: She may have even had some name recognition, but maybe possible. not. It's possible. Mean, I, yeah, I wondered that. Or at least, n- not name recognition, but just her act may have had some...
5: You know, that might have come up in the orphanage, too, when she went in. You know, they might have said, like, oh, yeah, she used to do these, these sideshow performances. And Lizzie was like, oh, really?
6: Right, which I wondered about that, too, if the orphanage was using it as, like, a selling point. Right. Because they knew it would be oh, hard to yeah. place her if they were like, by the way... This is a star. You know, it's not like you're taking on a burden. Ugh. You're bringing home a Jean Bonnet yep. of your very own. Yep. So at this point, Lizzie decided to change Bernice's name. She wanted to call her Genie, G-E-N-I-E. Yeah, like a magic. Like a magic Genie. I guess. I don't know why she thought Genie was, was a good name. But anyway, she ordered a new sign to be painted with this name on it. But the artist misspelled it. And Lizzie, you know, didn't want to pay for another sign. Right. She's like, w- I'm not going to pay for this shit twice. Um, so she just went with it. So Bernice's name became Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E.
5: Now, at 19, Jeannie had grown to her full height of two feet five inches. And the show that Lizzie had Jeannie in was being taken to the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936 in sunny Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> This was a huge fair. Uh, this was celebrating Cleveland's centennial, their 100th birthday, as an incorporated city. And it was meant to boost this city that had been hit really hard by the Depression. Similar to Chicago's World's Fair a few years earlier, not quite as big, but still, it drew in 4 million people in the first year. And then in the second year, 7 million people came from around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, to we see don't this do fair.
6: we don't do fairs like this anymore. We, don't. we just I don't. I wish we would. I know because they last for months and months or years and Yeah. You know, in some cases they're just yeah, up. Yeah, this
5: was two seasons.
6: And it's so cool they like built the world's fair. They built a whole bunch of buildings and they had an entire island that they built. I mean, yeah. we don't do shit
5: like that anymore. It's this, this incredible testament to like human ingenuity and creativity and just what we can accomplish if we put our minds to it. And I guess that's so digital now that yeah. that's it's not showcased the same way. I guess people have seen so many big buildings, they're not that That's impressed true. by it anymore. But still, I mean, I, I just, and we have expos, right. you know, like E3 for electronics and things like that, where they do sort of show off. But man, I would love just a good old fashioned World's Fair.
6: Yeah, where you're like seeing feats of architecture and invention. Yeah. And weird food that you never had before. And
5: Let's talk about the Great Lakes Exposition and what we're missing today by not having one. <laughs>
6: Yeah, there was a Streets of the World exhibit. It sounds a lot like Epcot Center at Disney World. It has like food, entertainment, goods for sale from over 40 countries. They had cafes and bazaars inspired by the countries they represented.
5: Cleveland had a 25% foreign-born population. And they held a contest where they told them, you know, build a market. In the style of your home country. And they gave away some prize for the winning one. And then, of course, you were allowed to sell your own goods and food and everything in there, too. That's At so first, cool. I heard about this and I was like, oh, they had a, a Streets the World exhibit. Like, that was probably just a bunch of racist stereotypes. But it was, as far as I can tell, it wasn't. It was actually people from countries building their own... Markets.
6: It it sounds kind of like we wanted to do this when we were in New York. The UN, like each of the embassies had an open house where you went and they had like food and entertainment from their country. Yeah, We didn't get to do it, but I thought it was such a cool idea. And it would be even cooler if it was like out, you know, you were like seeing a street modeled like or a market modeled like, you know, where you'd never normally would never experience that.
5: Yeah, they had these big business exhibits. Like Sherwin Williams and Goodyear and General Electric and Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company, Firestone—they were all there, big time for automotive and oil and engineering and right, all that be stuff. Like
6: electricity and like all oh, these yeah. weird, you know, just innovations, uh, electrifying innovation. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure they had all kinds of
5: yeah, <laughs> alliteration I, um, going on. Standard Oil had had this whole big exhibit, and they handed out these souvenir maps of the city they had printed up, and General Electric. Was promoting its new invention, the fluorescent light bulb. Oops, my bad. And you could go take a ride on the Goodyear Blimp. Step right up, folks. Uh, come on down and take a ride on the Goodyear Blimp. See your house from here. Ride in the Goodyear Blimp as high as the sky. Get up there, and uh, this Zippy Zeppelin will take you as high as your knickerbockers or mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so take a ride on the Goodyear Blimp. Only $3. $3?
6: What do you think I am, a (laughs) Rockefeller?
5: It was a lot. I guess $3 was like...
6: $3 was... I mean, 19... Let me look. What year is it? Let
5: me look. $3 in 1936.
6: Calculating transfer
3: rate. $3 in
5: 1936 was the equivalent of $57 today. Oh, my
6: God. Would you pay $57 to ride on a blimp? You would have to pay me
5: $57 (laughs) to ride on a blimp.
6: Unless you're in an alternate timeline on a TV show, because then oh it's always God. a blimp instead always. of a plane. <laughs> if
5: you've got a sci-fi alternate reality, boom, blimps in the sky.
6: Blimps, that's it. That's how you tell it's the, the only difference: difference. <laughs>
5: shinier buildings and blimps in the sky. Well.
6: Yeah, there was an Aquacade.
5: Oh, I love this. It put
6: on ballet water shows. That sounds so cool. It stretched out into Lake Erie. It had a 5,000-seat theater and restaurant where you could eat and watch water performances like synchronized swimming or diving. Yeah. Sign me up.
5: Sounds awesome.
6: Debbie Snook wrote in an article in The Plain Dealer about the fair and says, Olympic champion swimmers Eleanor Holm and Johnny Tarzan Weissmuller performed while local high schoolers sang in an elaborately dressed chorus. Just (laughs) the community being built here is so great. You got the high schoolers. You got the Mm -hmm. local population building things. You got the local, well, local businesses.
5: Well, that's what they said. They were like the the business presence ranged from like Standard Oil, which rented out or Firestone. I think each of them rented out a whole building Mm -hmm. to, you know, local shops would just put up, you know, four by four tent. And put a table out.
6: Just as an event planner. <laughs> I I am scared of this event, but I also like think it's so cool and it would be so cool to like yeah. build something like that for people.
5: There were a lot of celebrities there. I mean, in addition to the swimmers. You had Jesse Owens, who, of course, was the black track and field athlete who had won in 1936 at the Olympics in Berlin and really stuck it to Hitler by taking home four gold medals. Mm-hmm. Side note, Jesse Owens also secured the first sponsorship for an African-American athlete. It was for some uh, shoes in Berlin. It was the company that would later become Adidas, I believe. Oh, really? Uh, went to him when he got there and was like, hey, will you wear these shoes? And he was like, all right, fine. There's a, there's a lot of history to the Jesse Owens Berlin Olympics mm-hmm. uh, that I stumbled across. It's not for this episode, but uh but check it out because it's a wild story.
6: Very cool to be able to stick it to Hitler without actually like shooting oh, yeah. a gun or something. Like right. just like I'm just going to be really good at something, and you're going to wish I wasn't.
5: uh At first, <laughs> Hitler like after the one of the first victories, Hitler came out and he would only shake hands with the German athletes. And the Olympic Committee said, okay. By the way, next time you either have to shake hands with everyone or don't come at all. And he didn't show up.
6: He was a petty bitch. Let me just say that about Hitler. Yeah. I'm going to have a hot take about Hitler. (laughs) He was a jerk.
5: You (laughs) heard heard it here here first, first, folks. (laughs) Not big Hitler fans on this podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. And we're not ashamed to say it. Fuck that guy. Well, uh, other celebrities at the Great Lakes Expedition, Jimmy Durante, who was a big vaudeville star at the time, as well as Meinhardt Rabe, who was a famous performer with dwarfism, who he was already well known, but he would later become very well known as the coroner in the Munchkin City in The Wizard of Oz.
6: Nice.
5: Yeah. Uh, did want to. We brought up Meinhardt Rabe, and I just want to put a side note in here as well, because we're talking about uh, the sideshow. But um, in September of 2015, there's an organizational called the Little People of America, and it's the world's largest and oldest dwarfism support organization. And they put out a statement advocating to abolish the M word when referring to people with dwarfism. They say it was never coined as an official term. It was just used as a label to refer to people of short stature who were on display for curiosity and sport. And it basically evolved into a derogatory slur, and the community says, don't use that word, but they do prefer to be referred to as dwarfs, little people, people of short stature, people having dwarfism, or simply and most preferably by their given name. Hmm. So that was just a little factoid I picked up during the research that I thought would be nice to share here now, while we're important. talking about yeah, it. Yeah, because
6: especially when you're researching, they do use the M word quite frequently. They do, because, yeah. Because, of course, that's how they were built. Um, in these shows and stuff like that, so it's important. we will not use it, so
5: right, honestly, I thought for the longest time that dwarf was derogatory, mm-hmm. yeah, and then learned that no, that's actually dwarfism is the actual name of of the condition, and that dwarf is an acceptable term. so
6: yeah, but back to the fair, yes, because I'm not done geeking out about this event <laughs> <laughs>
5: it's beautiful. President FDR visited twice, the second time he brought Eleanor, and she, it, it said she made a beeline for the gardens.
6: It sounds like her. Um, in the center of the entire event was the Midway, and there were rides, automobiles on display, the gardens that Eleanor Roosevelt visited, and a Hall of Progress. Step right up, step right up to the Hall of Progress. You've never seen so many marvels in one place. There's a million things here, modern technology, that will blow your mind!
5: Modern technology?
6: That's right. What do you got in there? Well, for example, we got the Ohio Bell Telephone. You can make a free long-distance call while other people listen to your private conversation. Oh, there's nothing
5: I like more than other people listening in on my telephone calls. I knew it! Is this what the future's gonna be like?
6: (laughs) Yeah, there's gonna be a whole thing called Clubhouse. (laughs) Hey, you! You ever seen a television? Only? Yeah, you! A
5: television? That's that right. Like when, um, that like me seeing a telephone.
6: Well, if you come to the Hall of Progress, you'll find out why you're wrong.
5: Not again.
6: A 125 ton ladle for molten steel is another amazing thing that your eyes can behold. <laughs> My eyes are having a real
5: treat today.
6: How about a solar powered light bulb? Have you ever seen anything so amazing? Wait,
5: I gotta, I got a question about the solar powered light bulb. Sure. If <laughs> If the sun's out, I don't feel like I need the light bulb.
6: (laughs) No refunds for the Hall of Progress.
5: (laughs) Well, Snook writes that the rest of the fair basically ranged somewhere between the everyday and the fantastical, between Victorian innocence and dance hall sleaze.
6: Mmm, sleaze.
5: Look, anytime you get a bunch of Americans in one place, you're gonna get some sleaze. They had snake shows, there was a submarine on display, as well as a Mm. 4,000-pound aerial bomb. They had monkeys driving cars, and they had, I think, probably the most impressive exhibit there is: little boxing cats. They had little satin jackets and little tiny boxing gloves, Stop and they played. It. Little, they had a little third-round knockout.
6: Little kitty cats. Listen, I'm just saying, like when Logan Paul fought Floyd Mayweather, if they had had a cats boxing event, oh, much like, like, like the, the puppy, the puppy ball, ball, yeah, I bet a lot of people would have switched over watched <laughs> a couple of cats go at it. I'm in. I would watch that.
5: They had a working farm, a working oil refinery. They even brought in Abraham Lincoln's deathbed.
6: Sometimes with these fairs, too, I kind of laugh where I'm like, do you think they started with, like, the world of a thousand wonders? And then they got to, like, 900 and they were, like, running out of ideas. (laughs) I'm like, how about, I don't know, somebody's deathbed? Find somebody's deathbed.
5: (laughs) Lincoln's? Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Sure, sure.
6: Yeah, yeah. We know where that is.
5: But somewhere amidst all the panoply and the cavalcade, a man's head poked up above the crowd, the tallest man in the world, Al Tamaney. He'd come along there with his show to the enormous festival, and he was actually relatively new to showbiz at this time. Carnival lifestyle was was uncomfortable for him. He was having a hard time fitting in, and I wondered harder, harder than, than usual, usual right? <laughs> See, but I imagine he's got a hard time fitting in everywhere and the, and a carnival was no different. I mean, still, you'd have to get used to this idea of being kind of gawked at and being a product in a way. But one day he was preparing for the crowds to start pouring into the fair and he looked down and far below him, he saw two beautiful eyes staring back up at him. It was Jeannie and she thought he was so kind and she knew this world so well. She grew up in it. So she offered to help him. And the two formed an immediate friendship, and they ended up performing together side by side for a whole season of the great lakes exposition and Before long, they had fallen madly in love with each other.
6: Talk about a meat cute
5: right, I mean opposites attracting all the all the cliches Everything, are there,
6: yeah all you needed was one of them tripping. <laughs>
5: Right, yeah. Just a
6: little, just to show that she's a klutz, or, or they bump
5: into each other and drop their books. Right, and they like both go down to pick them up. I guess that wouldn't have happened.
6: I guess not. They would not. It would be hard to bump into Al. <laughs> There's a great uh, single-page flyer from one of their later shows, and it briefly talks about their life. It says, "Quote: At the time they decided to marry, they were besieged by publicity hounds who begged them to hold a public wedding, pointing out the numerous advantages to this procedure. It was not." Just the press bothering them when Lizzie Weeks saw the two were in love. She got dollar signs in her eyes if they were ever out of them and immediately began formulating a plan for how to make money off of them. The giant and the half girl.
5: Yeah, this was just opportunity knocking for the most opportunistic person in the world.
6: Yeah. Lizzie Weeks. Lizzie fucking reeks. Lizzie Weeks,
5: true. Lizzie reeks of cruelty. And oppression.
6: An avarice.
5: Yeah. Lizzie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> here she is trying to take advantage of a guy who's arguably eight feet tall. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't having it. He That's didn't right. want Lizzie controlling Jeannie anymore. Mm-hmm. And he certainly wasn't about to let her take control of him. I'd like mm-hmm. to see her try, quite Seriously. honestly. So, avoiding both Lizzie and the press, Alan Jeannie slipped away one night after the fair had closed... And they drove about two hours up the coast of Lake Erie to the small town of Ripley, New York. And there they married on September 28th at five o'clock in the morning by a justice of the peace. They were able to take a brief honeymoon up in beautiful Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. Have you been to Niagara Falls? Mm -mm. Oh, man. I went when I was a very young kid because we lived not too far from there in upstate New York.
6: Yeah, it looks cool. I'd like to go one day. It's on the list.
5: Let's go. And we're going to go check out Niagara Falls. (laughs) So after their honeymoon, they made their way back, and they graciously finished out the season at the Great Lakes Exposition. But as the season came to an end, who comes up to them but Lizzie Weeks? And she brings them a written list of their next stops. And she says, here's where we're going, and here's what we're going to do, and here's the money we're going to make, and here's the money I'm going to make, and here's the tiny little money you're going to make. And Al reaches out, he takes that list up, and he just crumples it in his giant hand, throws it to the ground, and he and Jeannie left Lizzie Weeks behind for good.
6: Yes! There's an interview with Jeannie that we found in a short film called Gib Town. It's on Vimeo by Melissa Edmond. And Jeannie says in that video... We had so much in common. I had an interview ask me recently, why did you get married? And I thought that was just about the stupidest question I ever heard.
3: (laughs) That's
5: such a sweet old lady thing to say about, well, that's just about the stupidest question I ever heard.
6: (laughs) And she said, see, we worked together, we played together, we did everything together. We were together night and day. Love it. So cute.
5: They they were a real special couple.
6: They went on to get the biggest job in the sideshow world at the time, which was the Ringling Brothers Circus. They toured with them for a while and eventually went on to start their own show. And they toured successfully as the world's strangest married couple, giant and half girl.
5: So the carnival industry was doing well in America at this time. The sideshow itself had originated in Europe a long time earlier, but there was a, a boost in America in the late 30s and early 40s. And if you want to guess why people with physical abnormalities had to flee Europe in the late 30s and early 40s, right back to that fucking asshole we were talking about earlier, and we're not ashamed to say it, That's right. Adolf fucking Hitler. The Nazis uh, had chased, of course, anyone they deemed to be different away out of Europe, and a lot of them fled here. There's a story about an Icelandic giant who his entire team of dwarf harmonica players that he used to tour with had been murdered by the Nazis and he too ended up in Giptown. Town.
6: And they yeah, they they wanted to kill anyone with disabilities, mm-hmm. um, mental or physical yep. and also old people. For a long, for a while they were had a program where they would euthanize old people because they were useless to society. Fuck
5: Nazis, man. Yeah, man. But as the war ended, European weapons manufacturers also shifted their production lines to things like carnival rides.
6: Which, how cute, to go from (laughs) building guns and bombs and tanks to being like, how about an entertainment thing? you (laughs) got to imagine, like,
5: if you think about it at all, that job would be pretty miserable. Like, if you go to work and you're like, what am I doing? I'm literally making murder machines. There's no way that doesn't have an impact on you psychologically. And to be able to go from that to, no, I'm building the... The Scrambler. I'm building the Gravitron. (laughs) All this together tied in with a population of folks coming out of the Depression that were looking for affordable and unique entertainment. I mean, we can try and relate to that now coming out of the pandemic of just like, just give me something besides streaming television. (laughs) I just need anything to go out and do. I'll give you 10 bucks to show me whatever you got. And it it meant a big carnival scene. That was a great activity for families and they had a little boost there in post-Depression era. Now that flyer... That we talked about earlier from Alan Genie's show. Inside it has these questions usually asked, which I guess is a frequently asked question of its day. <laughs>
6: what if we had QUAs now instead of FAQs? Qua?
5: Qua? <laughs> Qua makes sense because that's Qua makes what sense, in French. It's
6: what in French? I agree.
5: Okay, you heard it here, everybody. Switch it. If you have an <laughs> FAQ, switch it to a Qua because we're calling it the Qua. <laughs> it makes perfect sense and I'll fight anybody who says otherwise. That's my new most passionate stance in the world. <laughs> right after Hitler's fucking sucks.
6: Okay. That <laughs> seems like a good priority to have first.
5: Yeah. But underneath that, it's F A Q should be Q U A. All right. Questions usually asked of Alan Jeannie Tomaney.
6: Are his shoes special made? This was my question, so
5: Why, yes, they are. They are factory made at the cost of thirty dollars per pair.
6: Oh. Thirty dollars. Well, in 1940.
3: Calculating transfer rate.
5: $572. What am I, a
6: Carnegie? (laughs) How does it feel to be a giant?
5: He says it's a living being like this, but it's a nuisance trying to be made comfortable in a world made for smaller individuals.
6: Yeah. I I know he didn't have this problem, but imagine Al on a plane.
5: Oh, man. Just trying to fold
6: himself into one of those teeny little seats in coach. Yeah. Do they enjoy good health?
5: Yes, both are exceptionally healthy.
6: Does Jeannie do all her own housework and cooking?
5: Yes, whenever she is in her own home. What a what a, a question. what a wife question. I know. You know.
6: Well, I wanted to know if if his shoes are thirty dollars a pair, how much money is he making? Yeah. as a sideshow attraction, and it's pretty. There's a pretty wide spectrum of um, payments for sideshow acts. Yeah. I didn't have an easy time finding exactly what people were paid in the 30s and 40s for sideshow. A lot of it was from earlier in the 1840s and 50s. So all this is from those times. P.T. Barnum, for example, in the 1840s was paying as much as $150 a week to some of his sideshow acts. Um, For example, there was a dwarf named Charles Sherwood Stratton. He was billed as General Tom Thumb. And when Stratton retired, according to the rise and fall of circus freak shows by Zachary Crockett, he was living in the most esteemed neighborhood in New York. He owned a yacht and he dressed in the nicest clothing he could buy. Not bad. Not bad. P.T. Barnum's highest paid act was the tattooed man, George Costantinus, who earned more than $1,000 a week. And Crockett writes that while he was fortunate, many freaks were not, and upon Costentinus' death in 1891, he donated about half of his fortune to other freaks who were not as well paid. And Crockett notes, too, that P.T. Barnum is still criticized for exploiting people with abnormalities or disabilities by putting them in his sideshow and making them into freaks or whatever, but he also paid them very handsomely, and some of his acts made as much as sports stars make today. So he was creating millionaires over here. But Barnum's English counterpart was a guy named Tom Norman. His most famous exhibition was Joseph Merrick, who was sometimes called the Elephant Man. His exhibit with Merrick was shut down after only a few weeks. And Merrick was taken by a surgeon named Frederick Treves to live in a hospital. And Treves's memoir said that Tom Norman was a drunk who exploited Merrick. But in Norman's autobiography, he said he was giving people good jobs and the ability to be independent, whereas once Merrick was in the hospital, he remained a freak on display, but with no control over who and when he was viewed. Wow. So a lot of, I mean...
5: This is, uh, I think, a common conversation that's happening around this whole world a lot is exploitation versus opportunity, mm-hmm. you know? And it... it Largely depends on their management, on the show that they were in, the circumstances of it. A lot of these people seemed to do well and be proud of their work. And the argument comes up a lot that, again, this was a time when it was very difficult for a person with any disability to get any job at all. In fact, there's an article written by Kim Kelly called Before the ADA, There Was the Freak Show. And she is someone who has ectrodactyly, which is also known as lobster claw syndrome. She went by Greta the Lobster Girl in her circles where she was a performer at Coney Island. And this is very recent. She's been, this article is present day. And she mentions that up until the 1940s and especially during its Victorian heyday, the Sideshow was one of the only sources of gainful employment available to people like her who had an unusual or extreme physical or cognitive disability. She said some people were able to hold down quote normal jobs but for many the only other options were to rely on charity or to live in poverty or to be institutionalized so there there's an argument that the so-called freak show or the sideshow was a really fantastic opportunity for people to make a living and and be really independent and some of them made a lot of money but of course i think for every pt barnum there's a lizzie weeks And there's a lot of opportunists taking advantage of people and abusing people. And then, of course, you know, you can talk about how that's great. We're glad everyone's making money and everything. But what is the long-term effects of being constantly put on display and gawked at? And, of course, this whatever this disability is or whatever is different about you to, you know, the average populace that you're putting on display, you can't take that off, right? You can't clock out. Mm -hmm. And so great if you can charge for it sometimes. But, uh, you know, it, it's not like something that is only your job. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the difference, too.
6: And worth noting, too, that in sideshows were also just black people sometimes because they yeah. were black or someone from another country because they were foreign. Yep. Um, intersex people just heavily tattooed, pierced. So it really partly what's hard about sideshows is that Yes, the people in them were making money. It was gainful employment for them where there was none otherwise. But it also kind of cemented in the public's mind how to feel about othered bodies. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like they were yeah. like, oh, you're a freak and I get to look at you if I pay money and feel better about myself.
5: If someone's different than me. Right. Then that's a spectacle.
6: Yes, exactly. And and being abnormal in any type of way. Again, yeah. skin color. Gender differences, stuff like that. So it makes it kind of a hard conversation because, as you were saying, it, it's hard to hate on gainful employment for people when, at a time when, you know, you would be considered, I think, like the Nazis thought, a useless person to society. Right. In a lot, of, at least for a lot of people, they would be like, put them out of their misery. You know what I mean?
5: Yeah.
6: Um, even with people like Jeannie, who were showing that they could lead pretty normal lives, you know? So it makes it tough because it did, while it was making it easier for the the people at the time to be alive and make their money and go about their time, I think it kind of made things harder for people like that in the future. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We had to work against a lot of what got cemented in people's brains because of circus shows. Yeah, And I don't know if Kelly would agree with me because... She's a current day performer, right? So I'm, you know, right. Well, she, she heard
5: that article, of, and and you should take a minute to read it because it gets very deep into that dichotomy.
6: Mm-hmm. And she, yeah, definitely put her voice above mine. <laughs> yeah, in this opinion,
5: she and and the main thing that she I think kind of gets to because she's talking about the American Disabilities Act right. being formed in 1990, and saying that what's really great about it now is that unlike back then, there are other opportunities. Yeah, For people with physical and, and cognitive disabilities, it's not like it was back then. I mean, through medical science and through an investment in accessibility, there's a lot more options now. You're not mm-hmm. so relegated to, well, if you want to make money, you got to go to the sideshow. You know, so uh, while there's certainly many strides yet to be taken, uh, it has come a long way since 1940.
6: So complicated history of sideshows aside, let's get back to Alan Jeannie.
5: Yes, But one of the most supportive elements of, you know, this world at the time was that it was a very tight-knit community and a very supportive community of each other. And one spring, after spending winter with Al's family, which they did most winters when they were, you know, the the circuit would kind of shut down in the cold months. And so they would go rest with Al's family. And Jeannie one day basically said, hey, did you marry your brothers or did you marry me? (laughs) Like she
6: She laid it out.
5: She laid it out. Yeah. (laughs) So they toured again for the warmer months. But the next winter, they went down to where else? Gibsonton, Florida.
6: Yeah.
5: And this was that community. I mean, there's this article I found in the Corpus Christi Caller Times from 1957 by a guy named Jack Denton that talks about Gibsonton. He's talking to Eddie LeMay, who discovered the town in 1927. This guy was a carnival concessionaire. And he did the peanuts and Cracker Jacks and funnel cakes. Yeah. And when he went down there, it was nothing but a dirt road, but he would go fishing on the Alfia River. And it was unlike any other fishing he'd ever had. And he loves it. So he keeps coming back here. And then during the year, he'd go back on the carnival circuit and tell everybody about it. Hey, you got to come down to this place in Florida. It's just south of Tampa. It's it's right on the river. And the folks in the area were all good natured and friendly. Mm -hmm. And so everybody is like, yeah, if, if Eddie says so, we'll go down there. So... Other folks from the carnival circuit would come during the winter months and visit him and stay there with him and his wife. And eventually, they would start bringing their own trailers down and parking them nearby. And years pass, and gradually, this place becomes a central hub for carnival folk. And Al and Jeannie would eventually go every year. And in
6: 1946, Al is 34, Jeannie's 30 and they adopt their first daughter, Judy. And they were able to keep touring for a few years, but in 1950, they decided to retire to Gibsonton and focus on raising their family. This might coincide with around the time that sideshows started to be pretty unpopular yeah. in the public. Yeah, and carnivals in
5: general, I think.
6: Yeah, they are starting to feel like you shouldn't be gawking at people for medical right. problems. And then I think the medical science was kind of catching up, being like, this is not a freakish thing. It's just a condition, and we right. can treat it. You know, So it started to be a little bit unpopular.
5: I think in addition to that, I mean, you're talking about moving into the 1950s and movie theaters. Very true. Like there's this whole other option for entertainment that was probably, I'm going to say, probably cheaper. Uh, That's a guess on my part, but I think so. You know, kind of an easier in and out sort of activity to do with your family. And of course, a technological marvel in its own right. So every movie you see is fascinating. Mm
6: -hmm.
5: So, you know, that's that's beginning to take away from that level of entertainment. And television as well, I think.
6: Well, I don't know about you, but I just go for the news reels.
3: <laughs> We're
5: going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this.
2: From BBC Radio
4: 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
5: is going on a road trip.
4: I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is
6: Welcome back to the show.
2: Al also loved fishing, and like
5: Eddie LeMay, he found the fishing on the Alfea River to be unlike anywhere else he'd been. So he snatched up a little piece of property right on the water, and he converted some old shacks into this modern trailer camp. And he and Jeannie built and opened a restaurant and fishing lodge, and they weren't sure what to call it. So they had their friend Frank Lintini, who was known as the Three-Legged Wonder, and he suggested the Giant's Camp. And the name stuck. They called it the Giant's Camp, and they marked it by one of Al's enormous cowboy boots. Uh, They nailed it to a nearby road sign.
6: I hope they gave him some money for that.
5: That's a $275 road sign. I
6: mean, uh, my (laughs) God. And it's actually more like $572, because how useful is the other boot without its friend?
5: That's true, too. So they've got the Giants camp. Uh, In 1954, they decided to adopt a second daughter. And actually later, she would discover her biological parents and go to live with them. But but they did raise her for for a while.
6: What was a casual camping spot for circus travelers was turning into a bustling community. And Al and Jeannie invested heavily into that community. So much. They took their savings and earnings from the Giants camp and they bought... Bought an ambulance and donated it to the town. Amazing. Al became the president of the town's chamber of commerce. He helped design and build the community hall. He was also the town's fire chief. And his friend, Colonel Casper Balsam, was sworn in as the deputy sheriff who was only three feet tall.
5: I love that, that they were best friends. And one was the fire chief and one was the The deputy sheriff. sheriff. I I think it's amazing, like, uh, Al and Jeannie's... Life together. I mean, the, their life together is amazing. You know, just in general, like you look at the pictures of them, and they are
6: so cute. Also, by are. the way, Jeannie was beautiful. Yes, and Al was super handsome. Yes. So, do, go look at you know, pictures of them when they got married because they're super cute.
5: Yes, this was a, a couple she of had lookers. Had her hair
6: looking good. Yeah. yeah, they look good. They're very forties looking. You know,
5: very you know very forties. <laughs> yes, definitely.
6: But they're very cute.
5: Yeah, they were, and um, and I, I just think their life together is so fascinating. And it was over and over again. You know, they that you talked to their daughters or even there's even interviews with Jeannie. they just had a normal life Mm -hmm. if, if there is such a thing like judy says in this interview when your father's a giant and your mother is two foot six with no legs outsiders might think you've got a weird family or a home life but my mother got us up for breakfast and cooked for us in the morning and did laundry all day. She went to school as, a, as she called it a homeroom mother and made cookies and everything. She drove her own car. And my father was a normal guy. He was in the Lions Club and the Masons and the Shrine. Like we said, he was a community leader. Uh, they were the just such central figures in their town. Mm-hmm. And they were always together. And they were just they had such goodness to them.
6: Jeannie describes raising the girls with no trouble. Though when she first adopted Judy, she was so worried about what people would think about her raising a child, like that she couldn't do it, I guess, or that it was weird for her to to do it or something. So anyway, she was all worried about that. So she didn't officially adopt Judy until she was four years old, which she did say in in an interview that was maybe foolish, because until then, someone could have come along at any time and just taken her away. away, She would carry Judy on her back. And when each of her kids learned to walk... She said it was, quote, by standing behind me with their hands on my shoulders and walking with me, and they all learned to get around the same way I did by climbing on furniture and everything.
3: <laughs> I
5: love it. I love it. Judy, the daughter, she didn't like traveling, she said, which they did until she was about four. Because remember, we they retired in 1950. She said she missed her bed, but that even on the road, They had what she again called a normal life. She said Jeannie would cook dinner and at a certain time you'd have to come in for dinner just like anybody else. She tells this cute story. Her father, Al, would give her a dime and she was allowed to go walk down to get a cone of french fries in the fair. And she said she used to love walking across the whole carnival, which she said felt like a mile to go get her french fries. But that was her treat. It was her favorite thing to do.
6: I mean, I would do that right now. Just let me walk through a carnival to get french fries and then walk back through the carnival with french fries now even yeah. better what and just p- see all these like crazy people and yeah. just people watch and yeah. see all the games i mean yeah that's not a bad day
5: yeah and for a dime <laughs> sign me up <laughs> and when you say crazy people of course you're referring to the the carnival goers
6: yeah that's what <laughs> that's I meant. the real people watching. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the giant's camp this is so fun to me yeah the giant's camp was a hub for friendly visitors there, it was at a time when everyone took a Sunday drive. Right. And Judy said they often drove here. And their home was like an open house for the holidays. Al loved big parties. And sometimes a 100 people would show up. That's awesome. Um, can I please go party at Al and Jeannie Tamaney's oh house? Oh, my
5: God. What a party.
6: 100 circus people? Yeah. Yes. That yes. sounds awesome. And you know they're having like a fish fry and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I don't like fish, but I would still go. Uh, she said <laughs> I don't know why
5: that was a, a bonus for you then. <laughs> but I'm just
6: mean food and yeah. music. Somebody probably pulled out an instrument and they played music and I mean, you know, it's just a good, good time. Yeah. yeah. She said, quote, our home life was wonderful. It was what everybody wishes theirs was. No talk of divorce, no big fights, no drinking, no smoking, just a family.
5: I love it. The whole town, kind of like we said, it was just such a tight community that you know, they affectionately referred to it as Gib Town. That became the town's nickname. And they were Gib Towners. And Gib Towners would pitch in. They would help each other year round. They would build homes for each other. They would cut each other's grass. And they would tend to the sick and aid the needy. A woman named Happy Dot Blackhall, who Judy once refers to as Aunt Dottie, she was a 602-pound woman. And she had also been in the sideshows. And she retired from the circuit as well, but she fell ill briefly. And Jeannie came over and managed to housekeep for her until she was able to get back up and about again. This was just the the whole mentality of the town. They just all were ready to help each other. I, I guess, you know, having grown up in a world where nobody else was necessarily going to help them, or at least having experienced, you know, a lot of strange attitudes from, mm-hmm. they probably weren't often able to rely on the kindness of strangers. Right. Right. So they became close and... They all shared this relatable experience, I'm assuming. Jack Denton describes Gibtown Town as a stop-and-stare town as well, where tourists passing by couldn't resist but to park their cars there and wander around and marvel at people. He said one time he was at the Giants camp. Al, who also did TV repair, was tinkering with his friend Colonel Capers' TV set, and this Midwestern couple came in and just stood there staring and grinning. And, you know, he asked Al about it, and Al said, Oh... They just want a peek at the giant. I don't mind. I'm peak proof Hmm? Which, again, just the disposition there. I feel like right. you have to, have to have that kind of thick skin, I guess.
6: Yeah. First of all, Al can do everything.
5: Al's amazing. The
6: guy's fishing. He's fixing TVs. Yeah. He's building stuff.
5: A real 1940s man's man, you know what I mean? <laughs> like... Yeah,
6: totally. <laughs> but I was definitely like, man, I'm home. Please don't come here and point at me and shit. I'm just yeah. trying to... Do my life.
5: It's amazing and I you know we talked about that and I think he just had this incredible understanding of other people too and they they talk about the difference and the kind of the hierarchy in the sideshow community too. And they did say that you know if you were more attractive or you know the various differentiations would put you at a different place on that scale. And I assume that Al being just a tall guy, probably experienced less direct discrimination and more people just thinking he was pretty cool mm-hmm. you know than someone who might have had something people might say is uh, or a different disability that people say is
6: right like lobster claws right or whatever. that yeah. might that
5: might receive a much more you know a much harsher reaction from the crowd and so so it might have been different for al in this respect but i but i do appreciate that he for himself he at least found a way to take joy in it. He said, you know, these people, they come and they're, they, they're delighted by me. So, you know, how angry can I get? Like like in this quote, like, you know, you can peek at me all you want. It doesn't bother me because you just you've never seen anyone like me before. And, you know, maybe I'm making your day. I, I can't imagine that there weren't some times where he just wanted some peace and quiet. But that's sort of what Town was for, too. I mean, by and large, there weren't a lot of t- tourists there. It was intentionally kind of tucked away.
6: Yeah, I guess as you say, if he was getting a lot of jeers and like malicious yeah. comments, he might feel differently. Yeah. But as you say, there was just like, I'm just a big guy. So, I what are they going to say to me? Yeah. Just, you're a big guy. So, yeah. okay, fine. Uh, Jeannie did get stares, stared at too, but she also didn't seem to care. Um, Judy to- tells a great story <laughs> about how Jeannie would s- used to dine out with her friend, Francis O'Connor, who had no arms. And she said, everybody would be staring at Mother when they walked in because Francis would be wearing a cape. And they would sit at the table and everybody would be checking Mother out. And Francis would be sitting there eating with her feet and they didn't even notice. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think Francis was ever like, thank God Jeannie's here. I I can finally have a meal in peace. (laughs) (laughs)
5: For real. And all the while, this pair was inseparable. Jeannie and Al would be around town. Folks would see them. Jeannie would be up on Al's shoulder or being carried at his side. And uh, they were just like, again, just I think a town treasure.
6: Yeah.
5: Everyone loved them.
6: Well, and one of those loves that you hope you find in your lifetime. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely.
5: Definitely. They were so, I mean, just so unbelievably accepting of each other in every way. They understood each other in a way that, you know, most other people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And maybe because of that very deep and special love. Al lived longer than most pituitary giants, but as many of them do, he did experience health troubles as he grew older, though he allegedly refused to show any pain. Sadly, though, in 1962, at 50 years old, he passed away from complications of his condition.
6: Jeannie continued to operate the Giants camp for decades, and in an interview in the late 90s, she said, One reason I like to stay here rather than selling this place and moving somewhere is that I feel like he's right here, too. Well, I mean, when I'm down here at the Giants camp, I feel he's up at the house. And while I'm at the house, I feel he's down here. So I really miss him. And yet I feel comforted by him being here just as though he really were, which is like wiping a tear away. And she lived until 1999 and died just short of her 84th birthday.
5: In 2015, Ward Hall, who's a guy called the King of the Sideshow, He gave an interview to The Guardian talking about the acts that would bring people into the spotlight. He said, of course I exploited them. And the more I exploited them, the more money they made. And then he goes on to say that Elvis Presley also never would have been more than a Mississippi bar singer had he not been exploited. So it's one of those takes, you know, kind of like we said, going back to exploitation versus opportunity. And that seems to be the predominant argument that was going on back then. And, you know, still seems to be kind of the discussion today, again, at a time when... There wasn't many other opportunities. This ended up being a great life for some people, like the Tamanis seemed to do really well for themselves and help a whole town come to life. But had she stayed with Lizzie Weeks, she might have had a very different, much less enjoyable experience. Probably died life. a lot earlier. Maybe died a lot earlier. It's hard to say. But Ward Hall, he died in 2018, but uh, he still has the World of Wonders in Gibb Town, which Features sword swallowers and fire eaters and human blockheads. Something called the Hollywood Divas of Danger, which
6: I am there,
5: piqued my curiosity for sure. <laughs>
6: Sell me a ticket.
5: They <laughs> also have a strong lady, which I guess is something to be seen.
6: I guess step yeah. right up and was, like, see those. A strong, the, a strong lady, lady is such a funny way to put it to me because yeah. it's like a strong lady and like. 1840 would be like lifting 10 pounds and I don't know. like what yeah. you know
5: <laughs> it depends but on the lady
6: i know but i just mean the way they think about women
5: yeah back yeah, in the day they'd be yeah. like
6: strong ladies you know ladies can't lift shit you know what i mean right but today there's like women bodybuilders who, right. who are insanely strong right. so i just wonder how how strong is the strong lady right.
5: yes.
6: and the temeney family still reside in Gibtown alan genie's great grandson alex zander Marrow. Those are three different names. Um, He was born in 1989. And in the year 2003, he officially became the youngest confirmed sword swallower in the United States. He swallowed his first sword before an audience of international media only four hours after swallowing his first coat hanger as practice. And the record was later beaten by a younger kid, of course.
5: Which that kind of sucks. Like you can never have a second go at your record of being the youngest person to do something, right? Right. Like, if you're the fastest and then somebody beats you, you can try again and uh-huh. beat them. But if you, <laughs> you can't go back and be younger.
6: No, you sure can't.
5: That's when you only get one shot at. So <laughs> and until
6: maybe. someone beats you, you always beat yourself. Yeah. Every time you try. Yeah,
5: you can't ever, you can't ever break your own record. Alex Morrow is currently known as the Junior Torture King. And his grandmother, Alan and Jeannie's daughter, Judy, built him his first bed of nails. Talk about a legacy. You
1: know. Talk about
6: a legacy. Which, by the way, thanks to the Fringe Festival, we do know some circus performers ourselves. Yeah, we do. We do. And I asked my friend Adam once, who does a bed of nails. Like so, what's the trick? And he goes, "There is no trick. You just walk on, or you just lay on a bed of nails." Like, yep. and it's true. He walked on glass, and yeah, his feet were super bloody and stuff. Yep. I don't know why I thought there was a trick to it. <laughs> I, I thought there's no way a person would do that right. unless uh, it it's didn't just, hurt. But you just build up calluses, I guess. There's a little.
5: Well, there's a little bit of math to the bed of nails. They have to be spaced. Right. A certain, you know, if they're too far apart, mm-hmm. like if you lay down on three nails, they're going to go through you. Yeah. But if you if they're close enough together, your body weight is dispersed amongst them and your mm-hmm. skin won't puncture. But, you know, yeah, I, I've seen Adam do it. He's yeah. pretty amazing.
6: Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. Low, low quality entertainment. <laughs>
5: and from Adam's group Thimble Rig, also Jen, mm-hmm. uh, who a is a blockhead. There's no trick to that. She just yeah. hammers nails into her nose. Oh my
6: god, it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> she performed at our wedding. She did. Yeah, 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 and it was break. as well as
5: Jason. Jason, Munger. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had stilt walker, stilt walker, and a fire breather, and all, and he's a sword swallower.
6: He is. So anyway, no trick to it. Just willing to put yourself through it. That's the trick.
5: Yep. Again, just a beautiful story about mm-hmm. some wonderful people making the most of it, finding each other in this incredible way. Yeah. And then just living this beautiful life together.
6: Yeah.
5: Uh-huh. Against, I don't say against all odds, but against odds. Some
6: odds, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Nice to have a story that's just nice. Just yeah. a nice romance it between is. two people who got along the whole time.
5: Right. One of them wasn't scheming on the other one. Mm-hmm. Nobody was stealing money or
6: sleeping around,
5: chopping anything off <laughs> <laughs> of the other person. Right. Of course, as is typical, it, there's complications. In the world they existed in, mm-hmm. uh, kind of tackled that a little bit here, and I'm sure people with a lot more insight than us have a lot more to say about it. But, uh, but still, a really fascinating subject to read up on. Check out the, some of the sources we talked about because this is another story that w- you could just tangent forever. Yeah, into various other subjects. But
6: right, that was, that was another book that we didn't cite because I didn't get around to reading it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was called The Circus Age: yeah. Society and Culture Under the Big Top, and. She wrote it because she was trying to explore how the circus basically sold colonialism to people um, because it brought over like elephants and tigers and you saw things on it. You know, people read it on a howda and stuff. And it was kind of like really helping people feel fine about that, I guess. So it's just a really interesting snapshot of like Victorian and and turn of the century society and uh, definitely propaganda, definitely uh, marketing because the way that they sold these shows and everything. So it's just a, a really interesting little subsection of history.
5: Well, I, I hope you guys love this story as much as we did. Uh, I hope you guys hold a special place for the Tomanis in your heart. Mm-hmm. I guess go see the Junior Torture King or if you're ever near Gibtown or see him touring. Um,
6: I mean, I'd go see that. Yeah, I got to go yeah. see the Hollywood Divas of Danger too. For real. I'm into that. Yep. So yeah, anyway, support your local circus. <laughs>
5: <laughs> as long as they're being supportive. Yeah,
6: of as course, long as they're cool
5: and not doing animal cruelty or mm-hmm. abusing anyone or locking them away so you can't see them without paying that kind of thing. But yeah, there's uh, uh, yeah, not much else to say.
6: Yeah, that that's Alan Jeannie Tomani, and they had a true love, true indeed. And we have a true love for hearing from you, yeah, our listener.
5: Yeah, reach out to us, guys. We we've been hearing a little bit more from you. Mm-hmm. I, I tell you, it makes our day every time we get a comment or a or an email or even just a follow on Instagram from <laughs> yeah, our, we our brought- personal accounts or. Or ridiculous romance.
6: We do run into if we're in a separate room. We do run into the room. Did you see this comment? Yeah. Just, oh, we got a new review or whatever. Yes. So
5: yes, I saw it. I'm cross stitching it. know
6: <laughs> I'm making a sampler right we now. You can hold it
5: forever. <laughs> um, but yeah,
6: we are romance at iheartmedia.com.
5: Yep, or you can find us on the socials. I'm at oh great, it's Eli.
6: I'm at dynamite boom. And we also have at Ridic Romance if you just want to follow the show. That's great.
5: Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we will see you next time for our next episode.
6: Yay. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance.
4: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast.